If you're here for the very short time, we pick right back up where we left off last time and last week. We finished chapter 8 of Hebrews. Today, we are going to pick right back up in Hebrews chapter 9. We'll take the first 10 verses of chapter 9. It's in chapter 9, it's really all about comparisons between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The, uh, the first covenant or the second covenant there's these comparisons that the writer is doing here outlining and again contrast for these Hebrew believers who were thinking and being enticed to go back into religiosity to go back into Judaism to go back to their old ways because it made them feel really religious if they were doing a lot of religious things so the writers kind of emphasizing here in chapter 9 or this part of the letter this epistle of comparison between the two for the sake of so much, I, at first I thought I was going to get through all you know, 28 verses, but then in halfway through it was like, no, there's no way I'm going to get through 28 verses. I know that, and you know that. So we're just going to take 10 verses here, and we'll finish up next week, Lord willing, and we'll talk about the second piece of that. But I will give you some of the comparisons in here so that you don't miss that uh, if you're only here for one time or whatever, you come back next week or catch it online. Either way, uh, let's see what the Lord has. Now we see the writer compares the Old Testament and the New Testament. We must keep in mind, while the Old Covenant way was in place, the ministry of those priests within that tabernacle, within the temple later on, the regulations, the practices that were put in place, especially in the tabernacle in the very beginning while they're in the wilderness, they were ordained by God and they were set up and given to Moses to then to the priests to actually do these things. This means it was from God, it was ordained by God, it was God's way at the time and it was to bring a foreshadowing or a picture of what was to come when the Messiah came. When the new covenant would happen. And so this is all good. Some people think, oh, you never, never read the Old Testament. Don't ever think about talking about the Old Covenant. But you're missing out on the whole counsel of God. Because Jesus talked about it. The disciples talked about it. Why would you and I not be talking about the whole counsel of God? And especially the Old Covenant. Because you want to see how God played this all out from the Old Covenant way to the New Covenant way, so you have a bigger and a better, clearer picture of God. Now we see here in chapter 9 that we are going to see the first part of this chapter, verses 1 through 10, and we're going to see that the Old Covenant way was inferior to the New Covenant way, which we'll take next week. He starts here in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. So the early sanctuary, the very first time that God gave Moses to give to, uh, to build this tabernacle. We're going to take some time to go through the tabernacle. But if you look at this, it says even the first covenant had these ordinances that was a divine service. Their service that they were going to do was divine, but it was based on an earthly sanctuary, not a heavenly sanctuary. Keep that in mind. It was an earthly sanctuary. What was it built like? Well, we see in the scripture that the Lord instructed Moses to establish a place of meeting 
between him and the people. So the courtyard was first designed 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and cordoned off with a white linen curtain all the way around it so people couldn't just boldly come to the tabernacle. So a curtain was established, this beautiful curtain of white, so the tribes would stay outside of that section on a day-to-day basis until they were coming in to sacrifice or to meet with God. Now one of the things that shows here in the first ten verses is basically five, five or so reasons or examples of the inferiority or inferior of the Old, Test, the Old Covenant way. And the first one is right here in the very first verse, verse 1, at the very end, it's an earthly sanctuary. This tabernacle that would be built, is we clearly know here in chapter 11, it was built by man, not by God. Physically built by man. We also know back in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 2, that it was set up by man. God instructed them to not only build it, but they were to set it up, tear it down when they moved, pull it back up, tear it down, be ready to move again. It was all on the earthly man driven. The people brought the necessary materials that God gave them prior to leaving Egypt. Gave them everything that was needed, knowing when they're in the wilderness, they would take those materials, bring them to these craftsmen that we know and see in Exodus chapter 36, verse 1. Bezalel and Aholeleb were gifted artisans, and God gifted them and gave them wisdom to take the instructions that God had given Moses on Mount Sinai and make it become real in real time. So the people brought the materials. These craftsmen that God gave them wisdom and skill built those specific furnishings and the tabernacle and outer courts and everything in in between. Based on exactly the perfect architect, God himself. And they brought these things put them together and after the construction was completed and the sanctuary was put in place, It was dedicated to God. We see that in Exodus chapter 40. If you're following with us on Wednesday nights, we went through Exodus. We went through Leviticus. Now we're going through Numbers. So those who have been following and coming, you are completely understanding everything I'm about to say today. You've already gone through the study. I hope you've been reading through the Old Testament as well. And even though the glory of God moved into the sanctuary once it was completed... It was still an earthly building constructed by humans out of earthly materials. That's the old covenant way. That was the establishment of this 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 sanctuary or this this entity in the middle of the desert. And this would cause Moses and the people, as this is being built in real time, almost three million people at this point. Looking down at this and saying, how are we going to fit our, all of us into this little space? This space is not big enough. This sanctuary is not big enough to hold three million people. Why is it built so small? Why do we even have to have boundaries and curtains and, and sanctuary and inner and outer courts? What, why? We're not going to fit there. 
So you know that they're looking at this and saying, this is limited. This old covenant, this, this sanctuary is limited in size. It's limited in its location. It's limited in the constant repair that would be needed to maintain it. But that's the limitation or the inferior aspect of the old covenant way. But you also have to understand. I think it's a picture that God says, we can build this size because even out of three million people, not everyone desires to come to the sanctuary. Why would we build it for three million people if not three million people all desire to come and dwell and worship God? So he, God knew the size of this sanctuary that needed to be built. Now, within the courtyard, within those curtains that was created, the 150 by 75, within that courtyard was a sanctuary or a tabernacle that was built, which looked much like the tents that the people lived in just outside of those curtains. As they were wandering through the wilderness, as they were covered with badger skins, the actual sanctuary was built just like it. It wasn't grander in size and scope and material compared to a regular house. So we see here in verse 2, we're going to see now, and you'll see on the screen a picture of the tabernacle outline so you can see, based on as I go through this, where it was laid out. We see in verse 2, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So the very first portion of it, you will see those elements in that, that part of the tabernacle or sanctuary in the first part of it. And behind the second veil that separated those two rooms, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant outlaid on all sides with gold in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant." And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So as you take a look at that diagram behind me, you'll see that you'll see the altar out front where the sacrifices took place. Then you see the laviar, which is where the washing took place of the priest before they could go into the actual sanctuary or into the holy place, which is the very first room. And when you first walk in, we see in this tabernacle, it was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. That's the size and scope of that room. Divided into two rooms, you see the larger or the first part was 15 by 30 feet uh, room is called the holy place. Then there was this very thick veil that they had to go through to get into the holy of holies, which is the back part of that part of that structure. And that is where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. That's where the Shekinah glory hovered above the mercy seat. That is the, the back part of that structure. And that, again, was only 15 by 15 by 15. That is it. And I give you the structure here because many times we think of something grander, something bigger, something wider. But it was a very narrow, long space. 
The actual building, the structure, was not that long at all. But it didn't need to be very big. Because only the priest and only the tribe of Levi and only the high priest, Aaron at the time, could actually go into the tabernacle. Now when we take a look at the writer lists various parts and furnishings of the tabernacle because each of these carried a spiritual meaning, a picture or a foreshadowing of fulfillment through the life of Jesus Christ. We see here the second kind of inferior reason why the Old Covenant way was temporary because by them looking at this, we see that these things that they were to build were just pattern of things in the heavens. We see that noted in verse 23, verse 9. But the very first one that was noted here is the sanctuary. It's that first part, the holy place. It was a place where these First initial elements are built and they were put in place here in this first room and that 30 feet long uh, part of the uh, what we call the sanctuary or the holy place. And the lampstand when you first walked in was on the left hand side. It was sitting there we call it sometimes the golden candlestick but there were never candles in it. It was burnt based on oil lamps and wicks burning within that lamp. So it wasn't candles, it was oil or wicks burning in oil. So that's why the lampstand is the appropriate terminology of what it, what it was. And it was designed to have seven branches, one up the middle and then three branches coming out each side, giving a total of seven. That, we don't know anywhere in the scripture how big this lampstand was. All we know it was beautiful in stature, covered with pure gold, and provided the only light within the sanctuary, the only uh, light in the tabernacle. It's the only form of light. There were no windows in this structure whatsoever. Just the entrance when you first walked in, that's what lit the room in that first part. Now we say that because it's very important as we study the scriptures, we see many things that are symbols or things that we see through the scriptures. You study the scripture, certain key words that are important, like light. This light was very, very important for the priest to be able to do the daily uh, work there within that uh, sanctuary. But we also know that the nation of Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations. We see that in Isaiah 42 verse 6 and 49 verse 6. But we also know in the scripture that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. John 8 verse 12. We also know that God has an expectation that you and I as believers are to shine as lights in the world. And that is given to us in Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. So that the lampstand was on the left hand side. On the right hand side we see the table of showbread. This is, the, this is a table that was three feet long. 1.6 inch or one, one foot six inches wide, two feet three inches high. It wasn't very big. And it held 12 loaves of bread 
Each bread represented each of the 12 tribes. There were two rows, six in each one, and it sat there and for one week and every week on the Sabbath day, they would bring in new showbread, replace the showbread, and then God commanded the priests they had to stay in the sanctuary and eat the older showbread. They had to eat it after they replaced with the new. Now this is important because as we take a look at that, it reminded the 12 tribes of God's presence. Jehovah Jireh, that God is the provider. He provides for his people. And that showbread represented that God had their back and would provide so faithfully. And he did. And it speaks to us Today, through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life given to the whole world, we see that noted in John chapter 6. The next item in that was the golden altar of incense. It was made of acacia wood covered with gold and is one foot six inch square and three feet high. And it was used to burn incense. We see that in Exodus chapter 30. And it was placed just before the thick veil. And as there, that's where they brought the coals in from the altar. This is where the incense was added. And it would fill the room as the priests would constantly do this throughout the day. It was a daily thing that they needed to do. Make sure there was oil in the lamps for the lampstand. Incense was burning. It was part of the, the whole ritual and ordinances that the priest's responsibility had in regards to worshiping and ministering for the people and to God. Now each morning and evening this priest would burn these incense on the altar of the, in the holy place and it stood before this thick mass veil held up by four golden columns that rested in uh, four silver sockets. Now that's important, I find, because it's a beautiful picture in itself, because silver being the metal of redemption is the entrance into the Holy of Holies. And so on the annual Day of Atonement, annual meaning once a year, the Day of Atonement, we call it Yom Kippur today, as you hear the Jewish faith celebrating Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement that we're referring to here in the Scripture. The high priest and only the high priest used coals from this altar and took and brought it into the Holy of Holies and before the mercy seat within the veil. And they were to do that because it was a form of worship. It's a form of, we will see, referenced by David as a form of prayer lifting up to God. We see that and we studied that in Leviticus chapter 16 verses 12 through 14 on Wednesday nights. Now, as David says, it's like prayer ascending to God, Psalm 141.2. But it's also a reminder of Jesus Christ intercedes for us. We see that reference in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. Imagine, only the assisting priest... The tribe of Levites at this point are the only ones allowed inside the big courtyard and allowed to go inside the sanctuary to do the daily things that they were supposed to do. Very limited. Very restricted. 
the high priest, it was even more restrictive because only he could go into the Holy of Holies, which is the next part, the beyond the veil. And once we go beyond the veil, we see two items. We see the Ark of the Covenant that stood inside the holies of all, the scripture refers to it. We see back in the Old Testament, it's referred to as the most holy place. So you'll hear three different names for that. But here we see the scripture, the writer refers to it as the holiest of all. And was a chest made of the acacia wood covered with gold, this Ark of the Covenant. And it was three feet, nine inches long. Two feet, three inches wide, and two, three, two feet, three inches high, with rings for the poles along its sides, so when they needed to carry it, they could pick it up, and the priest would be able to carry it. You could never touch the Ark of the Covenant. Why? You would die. That's why. You never touch it. It's <laughs> just not going to happen unless you wanted your life to be taken. But we see this, this small little chest, this Ark of the Covenant, sitting within the back part of the holiest of all, the most holy, the holy of holies, this place here. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the scripture tells us, the writer tells us, that the golden pot that had the manna, the, the food that God gave to his people in the wilderness day by day, faithfully providing for them, that's noted in Exodus chapter 16, verse 33. We also see in there Aaron's rod that budded. You can go back to Numbers as we get to Numbers chapter 17, verses 6 through 11. We will talk about that on Wednesday night. We see the third item in the Ark of the Covenant, and that is the tablets, the Old Testament tablets, right? The two tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. Those tablets, that second set of tablets, if you remember, are placed here in the Ark of the Covenant, noted in Exodus chapter 25, verse 16, for your reading pleasure. What do those three represent? Why did God choose those three things in the Ark of the Covenant. Let me give you the three things. The manna reminded Israel of God's provision and their unforgive, uh, ungratefulness. That's what manna represents. God is so faithful to provide, but his people can be so ungrateful for his provision. The second thing is Aaron's rod. It reminded Israel of their rebellion against God's authority. God is a God of the creation, the creator of all things. He has the right to be in complete authority over all people. But how quickly we can be rebellious to God's authority. The third thing is in that Ark of the Covenant is the tablets of the covenant. And it reminded Israel of their failure to keep the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. God gave them some guidelines, some principles, some understandings. This is, these are kind of the bumpers in bowling here, man. Stay out of the gutter. Stay out of the gutter. You don't need to be in the gutter and I'll actually help you stay out of the gutter. You don't have to live in the gutter. But the people, his people, failed to keep the Ten Commandments. They were not capable of doing it. 
And on the Ark of the Covenant sat a very special covering, and it was called the mercy seat. It was an ornate lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant, and it was made and designed with two cherubim, two angels. And they were sitting on either side of that, that seat, and the, the, uh, the wings would come across, and they would be touching and the angels in the design was looking down upon the mercy seat. And their eyes would cast down upon the mercy over the mercy when above and around them was the Shekinah glory. God's in the presence of the cloud that was over the Ark of the Covenant and mercy seat. What a beautiful picture that must have been. Now, as we get into this, we're going to find that the only person that got to see that was only the high priest and those behind Aaron are the only ones who would have saw that. Again, very restrictive, very limiting to be able to come into the presence of God directly. The high priest would come on that day of atonement. Once a year, he could go in. He couldn't go in at any time. He could only go in once a year. And there was a very much of a, a, a very specific steps that he had to go through before he was even allowed or be worthy or be able to be qualified to even go into that Holy of Holies. And one of the things that he would do is he would bring in the sacrifice of the blood at that time and would come in and, and, and sprinkle blood for the, from the sacrifice onto the mercy seat for the forgiveness of Israel's sin on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. We see that outline in Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 through 22. But make this note, that God looked down into the ark. He sees these symbols of Israel's sin placed within the ark of the covenant. Sin, rebellion, failure, falling short, not wanting to deal and work and have anything to do with God. And if they did have something to God, they rebelled and just did it their own way anyway. But when the blood of the sacrifice was applied by the high priest by sprinkling with his finger seven times onto that mercy seat. Once the blood was applied to the mercy seat, God saw the blood covering on the mercy seat and no longer even paid attention to the sin of the people. Are you with me? Are you catching it? Christ is our mercy seat. Our propitiation, we see that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. We also see the reference in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And it's by His blood, and it is His blood that is on that mercy seat, as part of that mercy, the Heavenly Father looks down and doesn't see your sin and my sin. He only sees his son's blood on the mercy seat. That's how we can find his mercy is new what? Every day, every morning. 
we rely upon God's mercy because the Heavenly Father looks down upon your life as a believer and sees God, Jesus, his son's blood, covers on our life. And he sees a forgiven person. He sees a person who is white as snow, not the sin. That is grace. That is love. We see here in verses 6 and 7, these priestly services in the tabernacle under the covenant. It says, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance or unintentionally. Those unintentional sins of his, the people, that sacrifice was to cover those. Now that's interesting when you read that through and it's like, why would the, only the, the ignorant ones, and the unintentional sins that they made is covered at this point in time? Because typically what would happen is the daily sacrifices that were taking place throughout the week would take care of the known sins. You're bringing a sacrifice to, for the covering and, and taking care of that sin you know you've committed. But once a year, they needed the assurance that all of, even the unintentional sins of his, the people were covered and taken care of. So the priest would come as appointed, went daily into the holy place to perform these priestly functions, such as tending to the lampstand, just replacing the showbread once a week on Sabbath. They would make sure the holy of holies, the high priest, went in there once a year and did their thing in regards to the sacrifice. His entrance into the second place was not for to hang out and fellowship with God. It was not at all for the high priest to do it. There was one purpose for the high priest. Get in there safely, do it exactly the way God wanted you to do it, and you are going to atone for the sins of the people, and then you're going to get right back out of there because you know if you do not do it properly with the right heart and the right way, that, that high priest would die. Matter of fact, history shows that they used to attach a, uh, a uh, rope of some type and bells to this high priest because they would listen as they hear little jingles of Aaron walking around. If they didn't hear anything and he didn't come out for a long time, he may have died because he didn't come in rightly. His life was not right. They would use the rope to pull him back out of the Holy of Holies because no one could walk in. Interesting. That will get your life right <laughs> if you're a high priest. But we see that he came in only for the atonement. The atoning blood was his first, very important. It's part of the inferior aspect of the old covenant way because the high priest was not perfect. He had to go and sacrifice an animal to bring in and sprinkle the blood on for his own sin covering before he could go in. Then he brought in the blood for the people. But that all had to be in a sequence. And that was why, as a reminder, it was very restricted of who could go into the Holy Holies. The Jews did not assemble in the tabernacle for worship. Only the priests and the Levites were able to be permitted to come into the tabernacle precinct. 
The rest of the tribes, if you weren't a Levite tribe, you were one of the other 11, you were out of there. You were not going in there. You didn't get to see that. You didn't have the ability to come into the presence. And that's why it's a reminder. Jesus' work is far greater than the work done on the Day of Atonement. Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient to atone for both the sins we do in ignorance and unintentional, we don't even know we did, and for all the sins that we do know that we commit knowingly we did. Jesus' blood covers all of our sin. Amen? Now once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, we find that the high priest's privilege to go in and do this work. If you've been with us in the studying of this, and I'm going to take some time to highlight this because I find it very, very important for everyone to understand this as a picture of Jesus. When this day of atonement took place, he would be in his garb all priestly up and looking really nice and just beautiful as can be. He would get the first sacrifice, that bull, and he would sacrifice because it was part of the offering to God. Then we find as we go through that, that he would then get this young bullock for the sin offering for himself and his family. He would get a ram for the burnt offering on the brass altar in the courtyard for the people. And all of this sacrifice. But before he did the sacrifice for himself or for the people, he would get out of his fancy garb and he would put on a white linen trousers. It's almost like long johns probably underneath with a little ephod over it. But I mean, it was just a linen garment that covered his body. Light, white, clean, simple linen garment. No fancy something. And he, it represented that he's humbly coming before the Lord and sacrificing an animal for him and his family's sins, but also the next one for the people. Now picture this, because in many years, I, being saved, I always said, oh, a nice white linen, linen, that's beautiful, that's nice. But do you think after the first slaughter, what did that white linen garment look like? Do you think there might be a few spots of blood around on his white garment? The answer would be yes. Because when they slaughtered on the altar, that blood had to be drained and it was everywhere. And it certainly was on his hands and on his white linens. Now stick with me here. Not only did he do those offerings, but they also selected two goats. They cast lots for those goats to determine which one would be sacrificed and the other goat would what? Be the scapegoat and would be set free. Stick with me if you don't know the Old Testament. So here they're coming through. He's doing all these sacrifices and each time he sacrificed, he would go into, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would take and he would take his finger and he would seven times sprinkle the top of the mercy seat. He'd go out, do the next sacrifice, come in, sprinkle seven times onto the mercy seat. Seven is representing what? Completion. 
Then when he came back out and ready to take the two goats, they casted lots. They knew which one was going to be sacrificed with a red scarlet tie to him. The other one would be set free, the scapegoat. They sacrificed that goat again for the people to say that this. But before he sacrificed, what did he do? He laid his hands on the head of that goat and prayed that the sins of the people would be placed on the goat and would be placed there because when it came time for sacrifice, the sacrifice would cover all the sin. He'd take care of all that. He would come out. He would then clean up. And then what happened? is we know in the scripture that they would take the other goat, the scapegoat, and they would send out that goat with a very healthy young man to run that goat as fast as they can, as far as they can, out of sight, and let that goat go free into the wilderness, never to return. Once they had confirmation through the methodology they had, the high priest would be notified that the goat, the scapegoat is gone and never to be seen or found again. And he would then proclaim to the nation of Israel what? Not only was the goat sacrificed and you are now forgiven, but now the scapegoat is no longer to be seen. It will never be remembered. Now, stick, stick with me on this because it's important as we think this through a little bit that the people during the entire time is doing what? They're sitting there wringing their hands going, are all of our sins going to be forgiven this year? It's only a one-time deal. If that high priest does not come out, if he dies, we have no one else to send in. So they're sitting there going, did the sacrifices work? Is God pleased with what's going on here? Are we okay for now, for one more year? Are we okay as a nation, as a, as a person? Is or God going to judge us as a people? Is he going to remember all of the sins that we've committed in the rebellion in our lives this past year? All of these things are going on in the people's minds until when? When the high priest comes out back in his garb to tell them, God is pleased, sacrifice was taken, and everyone's been forgiven. And all of a sudden, the entire nation of Israel would what? Erupt in cheer and celebration that they've been forgiven and their sins have been covered. That's a beautiful picture, is it not? But remember, we have a perfect high priest. We talked about that a couple of Sundays ago. He too was wrapped in white linen and placed within the tomb. 
that white linen, before he was placed in the tomb, he had covered with blood. And he was placed in that tomb. And he was placed on this seat, this tablet of stone. And after three days, do you remember what happened? The stone was rolled back and the disciples came running that Easter Sunday morning, ran to the tomb to see when they peeked in, what did they see in the tomb? The white linen that he was wrapped in, Jesus was wrapped in and it was blood stained. But it was also two angels sitting on either end of that seat. Do you see the picture? Do you see the fulfillment? The tomb was the holy of holies. The disciples came in to peek into that place that morning and saw the fact that Jesus' body was not there, but the linen, the blood, the angels, all of these things, the picture of the blood sprinkling on the mercy seat was complete in and through the life of Jesus Christ. When Jesus emerged from the tomb on that third day, it was a declaration of what? Forgiveness. Our perfect high priest came out of that holy of holies we call the tomb and it represented to all who believe there is forgiveness. You can be forgiven. Not just for one year and do it all again next year, but for eternity. Do you see why the new covenant way is superior to the inferior, the old covenant way? Do you see why the writer is telling the people, you can't not go back to Judaism. Don't go back to religious, legalist kinds of things. It is through the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, your perfect high priest. He's the one that has made a way for forgiveness. The resurrection... We have absolute confidence. It doesn't matter what kind of sin you had, you've done. Whatever it was, whatever it is, whatever it will be, is forgiven, it is forgotten, and it's no longer an issue. If you're under the blood of Jesus. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and accepted his full, complete work on the cross and resurrection for your life. That is the greatest news for you and I. How could we not go tell people who are dying in their sins about the love of Jesus and what he has done for them, the gospel. How can you hold it back? You've been forgiven. How can you not tell people there's a way to be forgiven and have eternal life? There's nothing greater. The resurrection is crucial because 
he had to rise from the dead. He had to come out of the tomb. Because if only the story stopped with him on the cross, then we would not have the good story. We would not have the gospel. We would not because like the high, like the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies, if he didn't come out, none of the sins were forgiven. If Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, then none of our sins would be what? Be forgiven. The question I have for you today, where are you in your walk with the Lord? That's the question you should be asking. Maybe you're outside the courtyard, outside the white curtain, back in your tent, back at home, kind of looking from a distance going, I don't know what they're doing here, this whole Christian thing, this Jesus, love Jesus thing. But I'm going to stay in my house because it's much more comfortable to stay at a distance. But your perfect high priest says, come. Come to me. Come into my presence. Know who I am. Surrender your life to me. Or maybe you're sitting here and you are in the courtyard. You are right there. You're inside that, that white, beautiful white kind of fencing that was put up. Maybe you've moved out and into that courtyard and once you're, maybe you're in that courtyard, you're celebrating today. Why? Because the courtyard represents that you're saved. And you may be sitting here saying, well, I'm saved. And that's great. Most of you are sitting here going, I am saved. I'm in the courtyard. I, I am there. The sacrifice was made for me. Praise the Lord, I'm forgiven. Many of you are in that place today. But I'm telling you, there's something better. Because some of you went from, I'm sitting here and I am safe. Praise the Lord. But some of you have moved from the courtyard into the sanctuary. And when you moved into the sanctuary... The holy place, that is where you are now serving God. You've moved into a place in your relationship with God. Now you're taking, trimming wicks and making sure the oil is in place. You're making sure that as those trimming those lamps and letting your light so shine for others to see in your life. Maybe you're serving by making sure the incense is all in place. That represents prayers. You're praying for other people. You're praying with people. You're helping and bringing people to God through prayer. Or maybe you're serving in the capacity of over there and you're at the showbread table and you're feeding people. You're serving people. You're actually sharing the word of God and feeding people the truths of God. Maybe that's where you're at in your walk with the Lord today. And I tell you, praise the Lord. And I look around here and I see many, many here are serving God. But let me tell you, my brothers and sisters, there's a better place than that. Do you know where that is? 
It's in the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God is. Not where the serving is. Remember in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory, the glory of God was in and amongst in the presence in the Holy of Holies. That is where my prayer is for each and every one of us is to move into the point of understanding that our walk with Jesus is not sitting out watching Christian things happen. It's not just declaring that I'm saved. That's where you want to be. Trust me, for eternity. And some of you will say, you must work for God. You must go do things for God. You need to do this and this. And I'm telling you, we need to do that because God has a calling on your life to serve and to minister to people. But the best place for us to be each and every day is in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God, where it's just you and him. That one hour in the morning, the time, that little special place you have in your house, and it's just you and him. Where you sit at his feet in his presence and you talk to him and he speaks to you. As you read his word. It might be morning. and It might be again in the afternoon. It might be at a very difficult point of the day. And you think you're going to die. And you're sitting there in his presence. Just you and him. Or it might be a late night kind of person. It's just you and him at night. And it's quiet and it's dark. And you're just sitting there quietly. In his presence. Let me tell you my brothers and sisters. The place you must come to and grow is to learn that the best place to be is in the Holy of Holies, in his presence. You must cultivate that in your life. You must find quiet time in the words. Don't get me wrong. This is coming and spending time in his presence. And this is a time to serve. And when you leave this building and you go out and you continue to serve and share, be a light into this world and encourage those in the faith and share the gospel of those who are dying in their sins, those are all things that God's called us to do. But it does not replace the time of being in his presence one-on-one. I'll take it one more step here Because over the years in my own life, and for many, many, many people God is blessed to be able to minister to, you might be sitting there today saying, I want to change. I want that deep, deep relationship with God that's one-on-one. It's a personal, deep relationship. But let me tell you what happens. And you're not alone. This is common to all. When you take that step of faith and you find you're sitting there one-on-one, spending time with him, crying out to him, do you know you're in good company? Do you remember? Do you know Isaiah? Do you know he was in his God, he was in his presence there in Isaiah, I think it was chapter 6, and he's crying out. He says, Woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. Do you know why he said that? It's because he was in the presence of God. When you and I spend one-on-one time with God, everyone says, I just want it to be so beautiful and peaceful. But that's not what happens. 
When you draw closer to God, God's presence, his light shines the dirt and the grime and the filth that is on your garments. That's why people don't want to spend time one-on-one with God and in the Word of God. Why people don't even want to come here and hear the Word of God because the Holy Spirit reveals to them as they come closer to God, reveals the sin in their life, the things that are still nasty and dirty and filthy that needs to be repented of. So people do what? Instead of sitting there and bringing a conscious level of understanding that you're a sinful man saved by grace, but you still have things in your life that need to change, instead of just boldly sitting there and repenting, most people walk away because they're very uncomfortable being convicted. And that's why people don't sit one-on-one reading the Word of God. They don't sit and just worship God and That's why they don't want to come to the church that's teaching the word because the Spirit of God reveals the things that need to change in your life. But if you would boldly go through and say, I know my Father, I know my Lord, I know they're going to love me and they're bringing this to my life because they love me. They don't want me to live like this anymore. They want to come in and God says, I'm going to, I've cleansed it. It's been forgiven. It's been forgotten. Just walk away from that sin. Walk away from that stinking attitude. Walk away from that grumbling and complaining attitude that's in your life. The jealousy, the anger, the unforgiveness, it's got to go. I've dealt with it. It's complete. The sins have been forgiven. And so what do you do? Not you. Other brothers and sisters. The ones who are not willing to mature and move through and grow in their relationship with God. This is what will happen and what I see of a pattern. They come and they don't go into the Holy of Holies. They will be comfortable just staying in the holy place and constantly serving. I'll just serve. Serve, 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 serve. Lots of ministry, lots of hobbies, lots of sports. I'm going to fill my life with so many activities, I do not have to deal with the stuff in my life that needs to be cleansed. Or change, I should say. So people will come back to the serving mode and just serve, 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 busy, 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 activity, activity, work, 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 working 12 hours on a job, 15 hours, even though it requires only eight, you work 15 because you don't want to stop working or doing something busy, 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 to not, that way you don't have to think about the issues in your life that God says, I'm ready to work on those issues. But let me tell you, my brothers and sisters, if that is you, you need today to take a step of faith and come into the Holy of Holies, spend time in the presence of God, and allow him, yes, to bring to light because he's gentle and he's good. And he's only going to bring what he needs to bring forward for you to what? Consciously repent. And what will happen is, unconsciously, you become holy. What would be the perfect example for us of this? Moses. 
Moses on the Mount Sinai. He's spending time in the presence of God. God is speaking to him supernaturally, giving him the whole blueprint of the tabernacle. He's giving him the Ten Commandments. Amazing God speaking to him so boldly. When he came down from the mountain, what was happened? What happened? Do you remember? He came down. His face was glowing. He didn't even know it. People saw that he had spent time with God. There was a holiness about him, and he didn't even see it. But the people who watch your life can see it. If you're spending time with God in the Holy of Holies, people around you will see the effect of that. You may not. You, more likely, you won't see the changes taking place in your life. But the people around you will. And so we see here, and like Martha, you remember in Luke chapter 10, verses 40 to 42? Martha turns to Jesus and says, Mary's not helping me serve. Why is she just sitting at your feet and in your presence? And what did Jesus say to her? Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen the good part. She has chosen it, this at this point in time to do is sit at my feet in my presence and minister to me. And I minister to her. There's a time for service, Martha. There's a time to be in my presence and sit. My brothers and sisters, my prayer for you is you will cultivate daily time to be in his presence. And when you get the instructions to go out and serve, go serve mightily. You will watch your spiritual life grow in that relationship with God better than you were. We're coming to the end of the year. May we finish well, because I believe Jesus is coming back soon. And so I am encouraging you today that I believe as you mature spiritually, you will come to as a Christian, you will finally understand that it's not what you're doing for him in the holy place that's the most important. But being with him in the holy of holies is what matters. And that's what changes a person. Being in the presence in prayer and in the word. The last part here in verses 8 through 10, we see that the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, the holy of holies, the most holy, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. What we just described, what we experience today in the new covenant way, has not or cannot come. Why? Because the old covenant is still in place. 
We see that the old had to pass away before God's new covenant way could be revealed and God's work of salvation in and through man had not been completed yet. And that's what brings us the fourth reason why the old covenant way is inferior is because the old covenant way was temporary. The outer court stood between the people and the Holy of Holies. As long as the priests were ministering in the holy place the way they had been done in this, for what God designed, until that goes away and no longer a priest becomes between you and God or a veil becomes between you and God, that is the old, inferior Old Covenant way. But when Jesus died on the cross... If you remember, in Matthew 27, verses 50 and, 50 and 51, when he died on the cross, what happened on that cross at that same time? The veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom and no longer hindered people coming boldly to God in his presence directly. No longer needing a priest to represent you to God. You could come to God directly and ask for forgiveness to be cleansed, to be changed. There was no longer any more need for either the holy place or the holy of, uh, holy of holies. Now a believing sinner like you and I could come into the presence of of God. Verse 9, and it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience. Verse 10, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed upon the time of reformation. We see here, and we'll close with this, because we find that the key word that I trigger on here in verse 9 is symbolic. The Old Covenant represented suggests that a much deeper truce were ahead. That this was just symbolic of what was to become in, in, in their future. It was the parables of the New Covenant that would happen. And the priestly service under the Old Covenant could not make the priests offering those sacrifices perfect and clean forever, especially their conscience, this writer writes. The Old Covenant way was inferior because it could not change the inner man, the inner conscience of a man or a woman. It was only an outward ceremonial purification. It was not an interior, internal, inner person transformation. One was ceremonial. One, the new covenant, is moral change. Moral purification. An inner person. Your conscience can be changed under the new covenant way, which we will talk next week.